Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Blood Brothers. How are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you. Well, I always feel that way, and I feel that way today. Hey, I have a couple of corrections I want to lob, lob your way. I want to lob them at you. Correction number one. The name of the Star Trek series I cited near the end of our last main feed episode is Strange New Worlds, not Brave New Worlds. My bad. Oh, my bad. Correction number two. In the final episode of TV VIP, all of those episodes, by the way, now available via our $3 a month Patreon tier, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. In that final episode, I claimed Dennis Haysbert was the spokesperson for State Farm Insurance. No! Oh, Jonathan, not true. He is actually the spokesperson for Allstate Insurance. Oh, my bad. Ah, the recent... Oh, oh, ew, here's an announcement. This is not a correction. This is an announcement. The recent edition of Some Like It Hot brings my cast album collection to 900 titles strong. I think that's something to celebrate. Ah, champagne and caviar for every... No? Oh, no. Patty and Benny are saying that's not in the budget. No champagne, no caviar. Okay. I will say this. If you're ever in need of anything in terms of a cast recording, hit me up via musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I'll send it to you for free. I don't care. Uh, Think of me as your personal pirate bay. Ooh. And it's actually a lot easier to work with me because you don't have to deal with, I don't know. I don't know how pirate bay works. All of that stuff seems so complicated to me. Finally... Last but certainly not least, Benny wants everyone out there to know that his mustache is bigger and more like that of Freddie Mercury than ever. I agree with that assessment. Patty did have to point out that there was food 
in the mustache when they were having breakfast uh, earlier today, before today's recording, actually. Oh, I was so upset. I wish I could have been there for the breakfast, of course, for the for the team camaraderie. But I also want to see the. I, I I wish I I wish I could have seen the food in the mustache. That would have been. Huh. I would have loved it. Now it's time for the show facts regarding our latest main feed subject, Blood Brothers. You're thinking, show me the show facts. I'm thinking, I'm gonna do that. Let's do it. Willie Russell first developed Blood Brothers as a straight play for Liverpool's Faza Kearley Comprehensive School in November 1981. At the time, Russell was a big, honking deal, honk honk, on the West End, having previously authored Educating Rita, Shirley Valentine, and the musical John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Bert. All of these shows received awards, critical acclaim, and healthy runs, so it must have come as no surprise when a musical version of Blood Brothers premiered at the West End's Lyric Theater in 1983. After running for about half a year, the show pulled up stakes and went on a tour of the UK beginning in 1984. In the wake of a 1987 UK tour, the first major London revival of Blood Brothers opened on July 28, 1988 at the Albury Theatre. It eventually transferred to the Phoenix Theatre and closed in 2012 after logging 10,013 performances. This revival is currently the fifth longest-running production in the history of the West End, the Woman in Black is number four with 13,232 performances, and Mamma Mia is number six with 9,144. Story time. Okay, quick story. I had a chance to see the long-running revival of Blood Brothers during my, my college trip to London. I was a senior in college, but a professor, oh, a professor convinced me it wasn't serious theater or something like that. So I bought a ticket to the 39 Steps instead, and dear listener, I regret my decision. This is the very same, oh boy, this is the same senior college trip to London where we saw The Lord of the Rings, the musical. You know, that very serious, very important piece of musical theater. So you can see, you can see what I was dealing with at the time. All right, back to the show facts. Here are the Broadway production show facts. Blood Brothers was a 1993 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on April 25th, 1993 at the Music Box Theater and ran for 800 and 40 performances. Not bad. It's not 10,013 performances, but, you know, 840. <laughs> That's nothing to spit at. Book, music, and lyrics are provided to us by Willie Russell, director Bill Kenwright, and Bob Thompson. Okay, directors. Two directors in this economy. Musical director Rick Fox. Orchestrations. Here's the thing. I have a music arranged by credit, which goes to Del Newman. That's about as close as we can get because there is no official orchestrations credit. All right. Choreographer. No choreographer listed on the IBDB. Scenic design Andy Walmsley. Lighting design Joe Atkins. Sound design Paul Astbury. Costume design Andy Walmsley. And the original Broadway cast was as follows. I want to begin with the Broadway 
Broadway debuts because we have a number of debuts. Hey, here's one. Carrie Butler from Hairspray, Little Shop of Horrors, Xanadu, and Beetlejuice. This was her Broadway debut. Congratulations to Miss Butler and congratulations to James Clow, Warwick Evans, Jan Graveson, Mark Michael Hutchinson, Stephanie Lawrence, Philip Leal, Con O'Neill, Sam Samuelson, and Douglas Weston. Allow me to go back for a second. Warwick Evans and Con O'Neill in this production, they are reprising their roles from the 1988 London revival. So, eh, you know, I just wanted to throw that out there, give you that additional context. Here, okay, so we are done with the uh, the Broadway debuts. Congratulations, a round of applause to all of all of those individuals. But here are here's the rest of that cast: Ivar Broger, Robin Haynes, Regina O'Malley, John Schiappa, Anne Torsiglieri, and Barbara Walsh. As always, I do my best to pronounce these names as accurately as possible, but mistakes are inevitably made. I try my best, okay? Tony nods. Me show the Broadway production of Blood Brothers was nominated for Best Musical, as well as Best Book of a Musical, Willie Russell, Best Actor in a Musical, Con O'Neill, Best Actress in a Musical, Stephanie Lawrence, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Jan Graveson, and Best Direction of a Musical, Bill Kenwright, and Bob Thompson. So, six nominations in total, zero awards when all was said and done. Oh, beady bong. How about a nice plot summary? If you're not familiar with Blood Brothers, you're probably thinking, what's the plot? Oh, what's the story all about? Well, here we go. Act one, our story begins at the end with Mrs. Johnston standing over the bodies of her dead sons, Mickey and Eddie. An ethereal narrator who often appears throughout the show as various supporting characters introduces himself before sending us back in time to the 1950s. We meet a younger, happier version of Mrs. Johnston, who lives a working-class life in Liverpool. She describes her relationship with a man who married and abandoned her to raise their seven kids on her own. You know who also had seven kids? Charlie Anderson from Shenandoah. Oh, 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 oh. I love a parallel. I do, oh, oh. Upon discovering she is pregnant yet again, this time with another man's child, Mrs. Johnston takes a job as a cleaning woman for Mr. and Mrs. Lyons, an upper-middle-class couple. The money she earns will allow Mrs. Johnston to support one more child, but here's the rub. She's actually having twins. Ah, and if you're wondering, hey, uh, that, that new guy, the, the father of this, the latest child, where is he? I don't know. He's not in the mix, okay? He's not in the mix. Mrs. Lyons, who, as a reminder, is the woman Mrs. Johnston now works for. Mrs. Lyons, who could easily help Mrs. Johnston by raising her salary, proposes instead a dark and twisted bargain. Uh-oh. Mrs. Johnston could simply give one of the twins to her. Mrs. Lyons has always wanted a baby, but is incapable of having one. This is a perfect solution. Give me your baby. Mrs. Johnston reluctantly agrees and even swears on a Bible to keep her promise, but when the big day arrives, she cannot help but adore her newborn sons. She even names them Michael and Edward. How could she possibly give one of them away? Mrs. Lyons puts the squeeze on Mrs. Johnston and successfully manages to walk away with Edward. 
Mrs. Johnston returns home, where she informs her other children that Edward has died. Oh, okay. As if all of this weren't enough, Mrs. Johnston is still working for Mrs. Lyons, which means she's constantly around baby Edward. Tensions mount and Mrs. Lyons fires Mrs. Johnston. Mrs. Johnston demands the return of her son. Ah, but Mrs. Lyons has an ace up her sleeve. Knowing Mrs. Johnston is superstitious, she informs her that twins who discover they were separated at birth will immediately die. Horrified by this notion, Mrs. Johnston agrees to stay away from the Lyons family. Did I mention Mr. Lyons? Mr. Lyons believes baby Edward to be his biological son? I have no idea how Mrs. Lyons pulled that off, but she did, by golly. We flash forward in time. Edward and Michael, who now goes by Mickey, are seven years old. They become fast friends upon learning they share the same birthday and vow to remain blood brothers forevermore. Mrs. Johnston and Mrs. Lyons are predictably unnerved by the friendship. They do everything in their power to keep the boys apart, but nothing works. These children are inextricably linked. A frazzled Mrs. Lyons convinces her husband to move away. Edward, who now goes by Eddie, visits the Johnston house to say goodbye. Mickey isn't there. As a consolation, Mrs. Johnston gives Eddie a locket that contains a picture of her and Mickey. When Mickey goes to Eddie's house to say goodbye, he's heartbroken to find the Lyons family has already moved. The first act ends with the Johnstons leaving Liverpool to move into a brand new council house in Skelmersdale. A council house is a form of British public housing, for those who might be wondering. I should note, Skelmersdale is quite close to the town the Lions chose to move to, though neither family is aware of this fact. They will find out soon enough. Act 2. Welcome to the 1970s, baby! Yeah! Mickey and Eddie are now 14. Mickey has a crush on his childhood friend, Linda, but he doesn't know how to put his feelings into words. His older brother, Sammy, is quickly evolving into a small-time criminal. In one of many violent incidents, Sammy threatens a bus driver with a knife and steals the poor man's money. Sammy is a... Uh, Sammy is a fucked up fellow, folks. I'm not gonna lie to you. Mickey is suspended after insulting a teacher. Linda leaps to his defense and is also suspended. When Eddie refuses to give his locket to a teacher at his boarding school, he too is suspended. Ah, the password is suspended. Bang! Mrs. Lyons steals the locket from Eddie and is terrified by its contents. She assumes the boy in the photo is Eddie. She thinks, when did Mrs. Johnston take a photo with Eddie? Why is she obsessed with my son? Mrs. Lyons is losing her marbles. Eddie and Mickey spot each other on the street. Though neither realizes they are looking at their long-lost blood brother, they both wish they could be as cool and confident as the other. While wandering the countryside, Linda makes it clear to Mickey that he should ask her out. Ask me out, ya daft loony! Ah! Mickey is embarrassed. Oh, what am I gonna do? He soon reunites with Eddie. Ah, my blood brother! And Eddie offers ill-informed romantic advice before suggesting they hit up a pornographic film. You can see how it's done! 
Boys will be boys, I suppose. You know how you go with your best friend to a porno. Mickey reintroduces Eddie to Mrs. Johnston, who is surprised but generally unbothered by this development. After all, everyone involved has a nice life now. Why upset the apple cart? I'll tell you who's ready and willing to upset the apple cart, Mrs. Lyons. She arrives at Mrs. Johnston's door in a rage and accuses her of following the Lyons family. You must move away immediately, Mrs. Johnston. If it's a matter of money, I'd be willing to pay you. <laughs> money, 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 mum, mum, mum. Mrs. Johnston rejects the bribe. No. Mrs. Lyons pulls out a knife. Ah, what is it with these people and knives? Mrs. Johnston kicks Mrs. Lyons' ass and throws her out like a bag of garbage. Sayonara, babe! In case I, in case I wasn't clear, Mrs. Lyons is certifiably off her rocker at this point. She literally has a madwoman reputation around the neighborhood, and I have no clue how Mr. Lyons or Eddie deal with that because it never comes up in the Wikipedia summary, so I don't know. Mickey, Eddie, and Linda spent several glorious summers together, but when Eddie is accepted at a university in Liverpool, he finds it difficult to reveal that news to Mickey. He asks Linda for advice, and she, in turn, asks him for advice on dating Mickey. The daft loony still hasn't asked me out. Eddie, what would you say to me if you were in love with me? Eddie is embarrassed. Oh, he has feelings for Linda, but would never do anything to hurt his blood brother. Hashtag love triangle. Shortly after Eddie leaves for university, Linda becomes pregnant. She marries Mickey, and they move in with Mrs. Johnston. Mickey loses his factory job as a result of the nationwide recession and immediately spirals into a depression. A visit from Eddie reveals just how much the men have changed and their friendship deteriorates. Mickey agrees to help his brother Sammy pull off a robbery so they can get some money. <laughs> I mean, it stands to reason. That results in Sammy committing a murder, and Mickey is sent to prison for seven years as an accomplice to the crime. Oh, wait. My, wait, wait, wait. My apologies. I forgot to note that Sammy has a metal plate in his head. Why does he have a metal plate in his head? Well, it's because he fell out of a window as a child. He's got baggage, okay? Sammy's got baggage. During his term in prison, Mickey is officially diagnosed with depression. He's eventually released for good behavior, but has become severely reliant on antidepressants. It's, this is a weird part of the show. We'll talk about this later. And, you know, ultimately, it, the, the, the depressants, the antidepressants, they cause him to be emotionally withdrawn. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Linda turns to Eddie for help, and he uses his influence as a newly elected local counselor to get them a house and a job for Mickey. Mrs. Lyons spots Eddie and Linda together and convinces Mickey that the two are having an affair. <laughs> the Queen's Gambit, as it were. Overwhelmed with despair, Mickey grabs a gun and storms the local council office where Eddie is giving a speech. Mickey accuses Eddie of stealing Linda from him, and Eddie denies the accusation as the police surround Mickey. Mrs. Johnston arrives in time to stand between her sons and tell them the awful truth that they are brothers who were separated at birth. 
Mickey falls apart. He's always wanted the life Eddie has. And if he had been given away all those years ago, he'd have that life today. The gun goes off, bang, and Eddie falls dead. The police shoot Mickey, bang, Mickey falls dead. As the curtain falls, the narrator poses a question to the audience. Did Mickey and Eddie die because the superstition turned out to be true? Or is this merely the bizarre, tragic result of their respective upbringings? The curse of class, as it were. In the end, here's an alternate ending for you. I did not know that there was an alternate ending, but here we go. After learning about Linda's so-called affair, Mickey obtains a fake gun, a fake gun, and confronts Eddie at the local council office. When Mrs. Johnston reveals the truth of their heritage, Mrs. Lyons leaps forward with a real gun. She fires at Mickey, bam! But Eddie takes the bullet. I will save you, my brother, Ack! Eddie dies, and Mrs. Lyons fires a second round at Mickey, who dies. Oh, I burped, oh no. <laughs> we'll leave it in. I'm not even sure if this is an ending. You can even stage anymore? I highly doubt this is offered as an option when you're licensing the show. Uh, this ending seems messier and harder to pull off a fake gun? Where is this fake gun coming from? I do appreciate how Eddie is willing to die so he can save Mickey. It doesn't work, but it's, you know, it's the thought that counts. For the purposes of this week's episode, I began my research by listening to the 1983 original London cast album, which features Andrew Schofield. Schofield? As the narrator, let's go with Schofield. Barbara Dixon as Mrs. Johnston. I'm sure you might know Barbara Dixon. Ah, okay, so she sang I Know Him So Well with Elaine Page. I Know Him So Well from Chess. That was a huge song. Barbara Dixon, very famous, very famous. Wendy Murray plays Mrs. Lyons. Andrew C. Wadsworth plays Eddie. And George Costigan plays Mickey. Okay, warning, I bought the digital version of this album through Amazon, and it's a great album, but there are a number of disruptive, silent gaps between tracks that are meant to flow seamlessly into each other, and don't you hate that? Why are we still dealing with that issue anyway? It's it's the future. I thought we were in the future. I then listened to the 1988 London Revival cast album, which features Warwick Evans as the narrator, Kiki D as Mrs. Johnston, Joanne Zorian as Mrs. Lyons, Robert Locke as Eddie, and Con O'Neill as Mickey. As previously noted, Evans and O'Neill transferred with the show when it moved to the Big Apple, which makes this the closest thing to a Broadway album we're ever gonna get, so... There you go. The 88 recording was my introduction to Blood Brothers, actually. A friend uh, a friend of mine, Warren, hello, Warren, burned a copy for me along with several other cast albums when we were in college. I want to say maybe Rent, Tick, Tick, Boom, Oliver was in there, okay? And then I watched, what did I do next? I watched the 1993 Tony Awards performance of Tell Me It's Not True, Sunday Afternoon, and My Friend. Did I tear up during that final round of Tell Me It's Not True? Oh, you bet you're sweet. Ooh, you're sweet, Bippy. My takeaway regarding the performance of Sunday Afternoon and My Friend is, here it is, is that costuming is crucial when adults play children on stage. We don't want them looking like members of the Peanuts gang, so maybe avoid baggy clothes and extraneous additions like the slingshot and the toy gun 
It's an uncanny valley. Let's get out of that. Let's get out of that valley. Rain it in. Less is more. Less is more. The YouTube comments for this performance are similar to those I found for other Blood Brothers content. Paraphrased, boiling those comments down, I saw the original 1983 London cast, and no one has been able to match their grit or passion. West End and Broadway performers never and will never, never understood and will never understand what made this show so magical. I saw it first. <laughs> to these people, I say, and I say this with uh, with kindness, I say, shut, 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 shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Stop gatekeeping. Stop weaponizing your fond memories. Why are you turning something that's fond into something that's uh, awful, bad? Stop it. Not everything is fodder for your fucking snobbery. Grow up, all right? And then I listened to the 1995 International Studio Cast album, which features Willie Russell as the narrator, the author himself. He's, uh, we'll talk about that too, <laughs> in terms of how he's doing. Petula Clark is Mrs. Johnston. Oh, Petula Clark, well, I don't think we've heard from you since we talked about The Sound of Music. Hello again. Joanna Monroe is Mrs. Lyons. Sean Cassidy is Eddie. Sean Cassidy is the younger half-brother of David Cassidy. David Cassidy plays Mickey. Now, you know David Cassidy, maybe. Maybe you don't. He's from the Partridge family. I think I love you. You know, come on, you know. Did you know that... <laughs> Did you know that at the height of his stardom, David Cassidy's fan club had more members than Elvis Presley or the Beatles? He was the highest paid entertainer in the world for like a week or a month or something, something like that. It's crazy. Petula Clark and the Cassidy brothers eventually appeared in the Broadway iteration of Blood Brothers as a strategy for boosting ticket sales. And my question is, did that work? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Finally, I listened to the 1995 London Revival Replacement cast album. That's a mouthful. This represented what was then the current cast of the long-running West End Revival, the one that ultimately ran for over 10,000 performances. We need to do this more often for long-running shows. Produce new albums that represent the latest, the latest casts. Preserve that history. Cash in. Make more money. So who is on this album? Well, we have Warwick Evans as the narrator. He's back, baby. Number one, super, the best. He also sounds a lot like Freddie Mercury. I realized that while listening to this, uh, to this album. Freddie Mercury, I don't think that's an unfair comparison. Stephanie Lawrence, you're Mrs. Johnston. Joanna Monroe, you're Mrs. Lyons. Mark Hutchinson is Eddie, and Paul Crosby is Mickey. I listened to all four of these albums in a single day. Can you believe it? Why? Well, because my heart turns black and blue for this musical. That's why I love it. And I don't care if it ain't serious theater. Cheesy melodrama deserves space within the canon. And this one is pretty damn spectacular and cathartic. So there, let's start. Oh, let's start our score deconstruction with the overture. This is from the 1995 International Studio Cast album. And you know, y'all ain't gonna get no fully symphonic overture on any of them other recordings. So you'd best tuck in with this, my dears. That's my advice. Soup's on. Patty, Benny, let's hear that overture.
that is, oh, that is such a sweet, sweet symphonic overture, is it not? Oh, yes it is. <laughs> it is, that's what it is. Let's, uh, let's continue with Marilyn Monroe. I want to hear the Marilyn Monroe performance from the 1988 London Revival cast album. Let's go. Once I had a husband, you know, the sort of chap. I married him at a dance, and now we came on with the chat. Hey, I think you're a bleeding cracker. He said, my eyes were deep blue pools, my skin was soft as snow. He told me I was sexier than Madeline Monroe. And we went dancing. We went dancing. Then, of course, I found that I was six weeks overdue. What? We got married at the registry and then we had a do. We had Kelly salmon sandwiches and how the ale did flow. They said the bride was lovelier than Madeline Monroe. And we went dancing. We went dancing. Dan and Wayne And three months on I found that I was in the club again And married a bleeding rabbit And though I still fancied dancing Me husband wouldn't go Get lost With a wife he said Was twice the size of Madeline Monroe No more time that I was 25, I looked like 42, with seven hungry mouths to feed, and one more nearly due. Me husband, he walked out on me a month or two ago, Marilyn Monroe is a fine primer for more devastating numbers like Easy Terms and Tell Me It's Not True. I consistently wince when Mrs. Johnston's husband rejects her for being fat because God damn it, that sucks. I hope that guy died soon after he left. As previously mentioned, the narrator plays several small parts in the show, and I'm convinced one of those roles should be Mrs. Johnston's husband. In Is my long uh, conical director's cap, is that cap the one that makes me look like a schoolhouse dunce? Is it currently resting upon mine head? 
You bet your, oh, you bet your sweet, sweet pippy. Beyond this initial performance, there are two reprises of Marilyn Monroe that contain their own allusions to the Hollywood starlet. I have pulled every reference from every iteration of this song, and we are going to rate them on an efficacy scale of one to five. Does the Marilyn Monroe metaphor work? That is the question we seek to answer. Let's begin here. Quote, he said my eyes were deep blue pools. Me skin was soft as snow. He told me I was sexier than Marilyn Monroe. Quote, uh, yes, okay, a practically perfect start. Five out of five is what I say. Quote, we had Kelly's salmon sandwiches and how the ale did flow. They said the bride was lovelier than Marilyn Monroe. Quote, sure, makes sense. Five out of five. Oh, here's a question I add. Does the brand of sandwich change between the various recordings? I, I, I was convinced that it did, but here's the thing. In 1983, 1988, and in both of the 1995 recordings, they, they, they consistently refer to the salmon sandwiches as Kelly's salmon sandwiches. So the answer I, I found was, was no. Uh, the brand of sandwich does not change. Are you still with me? <laughs> Quote, and though I still fancied dancing, my husband, me husband, wouldn't go with a wife he said was twice the size of Marilyn Monroe. Quote, I'm picking up what you're putting down, Mrs. J. Five out of five. Quote, me husband, he walked out on me a month or two ago for a girl, they say, who looks a bit like Marilyn Monroe. Quote, hey, dude's got a type. It stands to reason. Ah, makes sense. Five out of five. Moving on to the first reprise. Quote, Since I pay me bills on time, the milkman insists I call him Joe. He brings me bread and eggs, says I've got legs like Marilyn Monroe. Quote, you know, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie to you, Mrs. J. I'm fading a bit. This does make sense, but I'm going to have to dock you a point because repetition, it's kind of killing me. Four out of five, okay? Four out of five. Quote, thank God he only got probation. Well, the judge was old and slow. Though it was kind of him, said I reminded him of Marilyn Monroe. Quote, okay, so at that point, Mrs. Johnston is talking about Sammy burning a school down and Sammy's brought before a judge and the judge Oh, he's old, he's slow, he thinks that Mrs. Johnston looks like Marilyn Monroe. The returns, Mrs. J, they are, how you say, uh, diminishing, a 3.5 out of 5. Quote, he's got a thing for taking blackheads out. He thinks that I don't know, that he dreams all night of girls who look like Marilyn Monroe. Quote, Mrs. Johnston is talking about Mickey being a teenager. I'm starting to suspect this character, Mrs. Johnston, may need a second reference for a famous woman. Three and a half out of five. I feel charitable. Three and a half out of five. Quote, And that other child of mine I haven't seen for years, although each day I pray he'll be okay, not like poor Marilyn Monroe. Quote, I'm starting to think this character might need a second reference for someone who died. Is this the only person you know? Three out of five, okay? Three out of five. Moving on to the second reprise where everything really starts to fall apart. In this, in this instance, Mrs. Johnston is singing about Mickey being in prison. She sings, quote, And when we went to visit him, he didn't want to know. It seems like jails sent him off the rails, like Marilyn Monroe, quote, 
What? <laughs> no. I mean, well, for one thing, Marilyn never went to jail, obviously, and I'm sure we're meant to focus more on the going off the rails part, but the comparison still feels like a stretch. So, eh, we're ha I'm gonna have to go lower. Two and a half out of five. Quote, and now the tears have stopped, he sits and counts the days to go, and treats his ills with daily pills, like Marilyn Monroe, quote. Okay, uh, yeah, Marilyn and Mickey both suffer from depression, but it never seems like Mickey's relationship with barbiturates or antidepressants, you know, whatever, it doesn't seem like he and Marilyn have the same relationship to meds. He's not, like, you know, inhaling barbiturates. He's, he's following the doctor's orders. Two and a half out of five. Side note, this reprise, which is known as Marilyn Monroe 3 on the cast albums, it includes a painfully outdated take on antidepressants. Uh, let, uh, this is from the 1988 recording. Can we actually play this exchange between Linda and Mickey? Let's hear it. What are you doing? I'm taking me tablets. Listen, Mickey, I've told you. They're just junk. You'll be home soon. You should come off them. Why, I need to take them. But Mickey, you've been taking Look, them. the doctor said he said it. What did he say? He said about my nerves and how I get depressed and I've got to take these because they make me better. I get depressed, but I don't take those. You don't need them, Mickey. Oh, God, Linda, leave me alone. I can't cope with this, I'm not well. When the doctor said, didn't he, hey, I'm not well, I can't do things. Just leave me alone, Linda. Yikes, right? Linda, you're gonna pull the we all get depressed card on your husband? The guy who's in prison after watching his brother murder a man? Come on, cut him some slack. Granted, these might be old school ragged ass antidepressants, but the idea that people should ignore their doctors is undeniably dangerous. Oh, come on, Mickey, that's just junk. What the fuck are you talking about? We have one last example here. Quote, well, he's feeling 15 years Years older, his speech is rather slow. The neighbors said you'd think he was dead. Like Marilyn Monroe, quote, Lady, come on, lots of people have died. You've got to be kidding me with this. The idea that the neighbors are whispering, Oh, you know, you think he was dead. Like Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Do you like my accent throughout this episode? One out of five. That's where we're ending. Okay, enough about Marilyn Monroe. Enough. Let's hear My Child from the 1995 London Revival Replacement cast album. Hello, Mrs. J. How are you? Mrs. J? Anything wrong? I had it all worked out. With one more baby we could have managed, but not with two. The welfare been on to me. Twins? You're expecting twins? How quickly an idea planted can take root and grow into a plan. The thought conceived in this very room grew as surely as a seed in her mother's womb. Give one to me, please, Mrs. Johnston. Please. Oh. Are, you, are you that desperate to have a baby? Each day I look out from this window I see him with his friends I hear him call I rush down 
Mrs. J, we must make this a binding agreement. In the name of Jesus, the thing was done. Now there's no going back for anyone. It's too late now for feeling torn. There's a pact been sealed. There's a deal been born. I am quite intrigued by Mrs. Lyons, this upper-crust Brit who uses her position of power to pluck and pull at Mrs. Johnston's heartstrings. The corrosive dynamic between these women and what it reveals about the English class system is genuinely interesting, and it's disappointing how the show flattens that commentary by branding Mrs. Lyons as some evil queen out of a Disney flick. What's less compelling, Mrs. Lyons as 
as the teeth-gnashing predator. I mean, her monologues are typically preceded by the sound of a snake rattle, for Pete's sake, or Mrs. Lyons as the mad woman of Scalmersdale West. Either portrait reads as incomplete, and I believe I've hit upon the reason why. Mrs. Lyons needs her own solo. This My Child number cannot be the beginning and end of her time in the limelight. If we as the audience were to be offered a proper villain anthem, I believe Mrs. Lyons would go down much easier. Or if not a villain anthem, just a song that allows us to get inside of her heart and actually figure out what is uh, compelling her beyond fear and anger and paranoia. You know, you know what I'm saying. Circling back to the number in question, my child is a low-key emotional roller coaster. What are these women thinking? This plane is designed to fail. I'd still be able to see him every day, wouldn't I? Lady... <laughs> You know, no. Ah, that's what I have to say in regards to that arrangement. Ah, <laughs> let's talk about easy terms, okay? I have put together a special, oh, a medley, a mashup of all four performances from the cast albums I listened to this week. We're going to start with Barbara Dixon, followed by Kiki D, then Petula Clark and Joanna Monroe, okay? Barbara Dixon, as I said, she's going to start us off. When you hear only only for a time, I must not learn to call you mine. That's Kiki D. When you hear, should we meet again, I will not recognize your name. And that's Petula Clark. And then when you hear this exchange, they're born. Yes, you didn't notify me. That's Joanna Monroe in the mix, okay? That'll take us through to the end. And then... For a special treat, you can have some extra Barbara Dixon right there at the end. As a treat, as I said, that's your treat. Patty, Benny, are we ready? Are, are we ready to play this mashup? Okay, let's do it. Easy terms. The official musical man mashup. Let's go. Apple door on the bright. 
why it's just couldn't I keep them just for a few more days please please they're a pair they go together my husband is due back tomorrow Mrs. Johnston I must have my baby we made an agreement a bargain you swore on the bible you better say which one you want then I'll take no don't tell me which one was important to honor Miss Dixon by ending with her rendition of the song, though I have to admit I'm partial to Kiki D. Kiki introduced me to the thing. Kiki D did the thing. She served. She ate is what she did. It would be one thing for me to say easy terms is the best song in Blood Brothers, and I do, I do say that, but I could never go so far as to say it's one of the best songs in the canon. Could I? Yes! Yes, I could! And I am! Easy Terms is one of the best songs in the canon of musical theater. That chorus spreads through me like ink spreads through water. The feeling I experience is warm and shocking. It sharpens my senses like a drug. Quote, oh, living on the never-never, constant as the changing weather, never sure who's at the door or the price I'll have to pay should we meet again. Quote, I sobbed, I sobbed like a baby when I first heard that music and those lyrics back in college. I chalk that up to my overwhelming loneliness and the fear I would lose any happiness I managed to obtain. Now, in the year of our Lord 2023, Easy Terms makes me think of our baby niece, Ella. We spent a lot of time with our nieces this past Thanksgiving, and Ella is still quite small, tiny baby. I can't imagine being a mom or a dad, her mom or dad, and having to say goodbye to her. Baby Ella, bye-bye? No, thank you. But, like, uh, can we talk about the nuts and the bolts of this thing? The da-da that follows living on the never-never. Living on the never-never. Da-da. That's a great A. Da-da. I love that. And I envy anyone who gets to knock that out in the pit. Da-da. I envy every performer who gets to sing, Never sure who's at the door. Stretching out those melancholy aquamarine notes 
And you know what? I love Willie Russell's soft rhymes. Only for a time. I must not learn to call you mine. Make future plans that cannot be confirmed on borrowed time on easy terms. Willie ain't about those perfect, crisp rhymes. He's too focused on lobbing those vowels back at us. Screw the consonants, says Willie. Before we move on, I just want to, I want to go back to that line, should we meet again, I will not recognize your name. Mrs. Johnston, that's categorically untrue in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? Mrs. Lyons chooses to keep the name chosen by Mrs. Johnston, which is weird. You'd think to throw her off the scent, she would choose a different name. Oh, you're calling the baby Edward? Oh, I will too. No, you should give the baby your own name. You're supposed to be the mom. This plan, again I say, ah! You do know what they say about twins secretly parted, don't you? What? They say that if either twin learns he was one of a pair, they shall both immediately die. It means, Mrs. Johnston, that these brothers shall grow up unaware of each other's existence. They shall be raised apart and never, ever told what was once the truth. You won't tell anyone about this, Mrs. Johnston. Because if you do, you will kill them! Shoes upon the table, and a spider's been killed. Someone broke the looking glass. There's a full moon shining, and the salt's been spilled. You're walking on pavement cracks. Don't know what's gonna come to pass. Now you know the devil's got you behind you he's staring through your windows he's creeping down the hall ain't no point in clutching at your rosary you're always gonna know what was done even when you shut your eyes you still see that you sold the sun and you can't tell anyone So than even Mrs. Lyons. I would say the narrator has aged the worst for me as far as the characters are concerned. I'm not sure how you'd go about staging or performing a number like Shoes Upon the Table. It's neither enlightening nor enriching. The narrator simply stands there, in my imagination, firing off random examples of bad luck bugaboos like a barker at a haunted carnival. Shoes upon the table, and a spider's been killed. Someone broke the looking glass. This is dumb stuff. Thankfully, Warwick Davis of the 88 London Revival cast lends the material much-needed gusto. That's who you heard. Ah, that's who you heard. Mustard. Ooh, relish. That's what he's given it. Real jaded, faded Mandarin energy. If you can't find any meaning in a song, you might as well howl it to the back of the house. Our author, Willie Russell, plays the narrator on the 95 studio recording. As a reminder for those who forgot, and let me tell you, Willie ain't 
got no gusto, no relish, no mustard, no nothing. I suppose his voice would be fine for a demo, but there isn't enough spirit or basic coloring for a proper album. If I'm mentally comparing the narrator to a sleepy English father who's suffering from a head cold, we are in trouble. He's much better. I should say Willie is much better when it comes to the narrator's monologues. I will say that. Willie, I'm not here to pick on you. That's not my job. My job is to uh, simply speak truth to... How does the rest of that go? Speak truth to uh, the tower? Yeah, that sounds right. Ah, speak truth to tower. Let's keep this train moving. Let's listen to Long Sunday Afternoon and my friend from the 1988 London Revival cast. I have to keep remembering to announce what album we're listening to before we hear the audio. Ah, I have to be consistent. Okay, let's hear that. It's out on the street today You could be living on the moon Maybe everybody's packed their bags And moved away On this long, long
God damn it, I love Long Sunday Afternoon so much. I find it to be unbelievably evocative and transportive. I imagine slate gray skies, harsh, miserable winds, and the dark silhouettes of empty houses. I feel so bad for Mickey. I don't feel bad for the person manipulating that saxophone. Oh my god, that person is having the time of their life. You can never go too hard when it comes to the sax. Not possible. Make that baby blow, Lisa Simpson. Sisters are doing it for themselves. When Mickey and Eddie sing about having a best friend, I think about how nice it would have been to have a best friend as a kid. Oh, you know, sure, I made friends in high school, but little me, little musical man Jonathan, little me could have used a friend. Being a kid is difficult and emotionally traumatizing. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Our next number is Bright New Day. I would like to hear the London Revival Replacement cast. Let's hear that now. This is from 95. Go! I'm smiling. I haven't seen you happy like this for ages. Yeah, well, I'm happy now, son. Oh, Jesus. Where are the others? I don't to that field over there, ma'am. Sammy, Sammy, get off that bleeding cow before I kill you. Sammy, Sammy, that cow's a bull. Now we can begin again. Feel we can win and then live just like living should be. We got a new situation, a new destination. No reputation is of easy terms left me wanting more, but Stephanie Lawrence sails right into touchdown territory with a bright new day. She scores a touchdown! You know, the number in this metaphor is a football. Stephanie Lawrence is a football player. Willie Russell kicks the football, she catches it, and proceeds to cross the touchdown line for a touchdown. Why is Willie Russell on the opposing team? I don't know, why are you screaming? Next up, I'm not saying a word from the 1995 International Studio cast album. Go! Tell you what I've kept in my heart But even if we had to live some worlds apart There would not be a day in which I'd not think of you If I was him, if I was him That's what I'd do But I'm not saying no way I'm not saying
That was Sean Cassidy singing I'm Not Saying a Word from the 1995 International Studio Cast album of Blood Brothers. Did you forget we were talking about Blood Brothers? Why are you screaming? I'm on board when it comes to Sean's vocal stylings. I like the vocal choices, I do, but his delivery of that one word line right at the end Mickey, he has to say Mickey. That's a miniature nightmare, and it told me all I needed to know about him as an actor. Here's my impression of it. Mickey. <laughs> Mickey. Stiff as a board and somehow weird as hell at the same time. I have to admit, not everyone can pull off that double whammy, but Sean's over here making it look easy. Mickey. Yeah, like, yeah, dude. Mickey, I hear ya. Mickey. How about some, ooh, how about a tasty sample of Take a Letter, Miss Jones? Let's choose the 1988 London Revival cast album for that. Let's go. Take a letter, Miss Jones, quote, I regret to inform you The dying to circumstances quite beyond our control it's a premature retirement for those surplus to requirements. I'm afraid it's a sign of the times, Miss Jones, an unfortunate sign of the times. Take a letter, Miss Jones, due to the world situation. Shrinking pound the global slump. And the price I'm afraid we must buy you, we no longer require you Just another sign of the times, Miss Jones A most miserable sign of the times Take a letter, Miss Jones, my dear Miss Jones We'd like to thank you Many years of splendid service, etc, blah, blah, blah You've been a perfect puppet, yes, that's right, Miss Jones, you've got it just another sign of the times, Miss Jones. Just another sign of the time. My rise, Miss Jones, is not as bad as it seems. You get used to being idle in a year or two. Unemployment's such a pleasure, these days we call it leisure. It's just another sign of the times, Miss Jones, it's just another sign of the thing. I did not understand that Take a Letter, Miss Jones is sung by Mr. Lyons until this week. That's kind of weird, right? That Mr. Lyons, a character who has no impact on the plot beyond costing Mickey his job, he gets an entire song and dance routine while Mrs. Lyons has to go without a solo? He's talking about that solo again. Well, we need to talk about it! Do I feel sorry for Miss Jones, Mr. Lyons' secretary? Oh God, yes, are you kidding? How pathetic. This woman put pen to paper and made all of those pink slips a reality, but she never thought the machine would come for her bones. But in the end, the machine comes for all of our bones, Miss Jones. The machine requires bones. It does not discriminate. Here's the part of the number I can't stop singing to myself. Quote, dry rise, Miss Jones, it's not as bad as it seems. You get 
used to being idle in a year or two. Unemployment's such a pleasure. These days we call it leisure. It's just another sign of the times, Miss Jones. It's just another sign of the times. This whole sequence is A, disposable as hell, and B, fun as hell. Frivolous is what it is, but hey, what's the, what's the harm in that? Let's finish this deconstruction of the score with Tell Me It's Not True from the 1988 London Revival cast. It's my favorite of all the albums. Uh, maybe I'm playing favorites here, but let's go with that. Let's play the favorite. Go! Mickey, don't shoot Eddie. He's your brother. You had a twin brother. I couldn't afford to keep both of you. His mother couldn't have kids. I agreed to give one of you away. Why didn't you give me away, Mum? I could have been him. I could have been him! No! And do we blame superstition for what came to pass? Or could it be what we the English have come to know as class? Did you ever hear the story of the Johnston twins? As like each other as two new pins. How one was kept and one given away. How they were born and they died. On the self same day.
it's not true is a terrifically gobsmacking finale, even with all of the clown talk. And there's a lot of clown talk, more than I remembered, that's for sure. If I may wear my conical director's cap once more, I would simply say that the first few lines of this number should be delivered a cappella. Quote, tell me it's not true. Say it's just a story. Something on the news. Quote, that's all. That's all I want. Rev up the orchestra right after something on the news and I will be a happy camper. Again, I will say perfect finale. It's a great finale. That's all I have to say regarding the score. It is now time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Last night, I had a dream. I found myself in a desert called... Cyberland. The grains of sand were ones and zeros. The sun was an enormous compact disc from America online. And the only form of entertainment was superhero movies. It was hot. My mug had sprung a leak and I was feeling sluggish. Out of the abyss walked a coffee bean. Esmeralda. I asked if she had any 5678 coffee. She said... I am forbidden to produce coffee in Cyberland. We only drink Coke Zero Sugar. They've closed everything real down and replaced it all with lies and rules and superhero movies. But there is a way out. Cup of Joe, cup of Joe, cup of Joe, cup of Joe. I screamed, I've got to get out of here. It's like I'm being tied to the back of a yellow truck and my butt's filled with fertilizer and the driver of the truck is an unlicensed daisy duck. I embraced Esmeralda. I told her, please, I'll do anything for your rich mountain blend. Even if it were not forbidden, she said, I'm afraid I've forgotten how. A syphilitic worm wriggled its way out of a nearby sand dune. His name, we have learned, was David Zaslav. One, two, three, that's bull, he said. That bean could have made mud any time she wants. She just can't admit Cyberland is a paradise. But look at everything we got. Our smartphones, our IP, our AI, our superhero movies. Baby bong. Esmeralda whispered into my ear, still sluggish, fucking exhausted. I slipped my head between her legs and sucked the sweetest coffee I'd ever tasted from her sopping wet labia. Singing Cup of Joe, Cup of Joe, Cup of Joe, Cup of Joe. But, 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 reality was more disturbing than any dream. The year is 2023, and these superhero movies just keep coming. 
Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, Madam Web, Deadpool 3, Craven the Hunter, Joker, Foley, Ah, Dark Speedy Bong. Whatever happened to the mid-budget studio comedy? Whatever happened to the erotic thriller? Whatever happened to movies for grown-ups? Boo with me. Thank you. Final thoughts regarding Blood Brothers. Oh, me like Blood Brothers. Me happy listening to Blood Brothers. Me, me, me. In all seriousness, <laughs> that's what I have written down, but I realize I should really re-emphasize the emotional hold that this show has on me and has had on me for quite some time. I think I was sleeping on that emotional hold for years and years, but when I started listening to all of these albums, I just, that passion, that enthusiasm for the material was reawakened within me. I don't know, it really, <laughs> the show allowed me to reflect on little kid Jonathan, college Jonathan, and adult Jonathan. If you got that sense throughout the commentary, it really did. It made me think about my journey as a human being, as a growing, maturing person, and man, it was a sucker punch to the gut. When I first heard Easy Terms back in college, I have to say it again, tears just streaming down my face. I was a mess, and it was a very cathartic experience. It was like something had been dislodged from me, and I thank the material for that. I am glad that I still, for the most part, really love this show, and if you have not listened to it in full, I would encourage you to do so. Now, in 1993, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was previous subject of the podcast, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and the additional nominees that season were The Goodbye Girl and The Who's Tommy. That means we only have one show remaining in this set of nominees. We are coming for ya. Tommy Boy, the Who's Tommy Boy, we're coming for ya. Uh, did Blood Brothers deserve to go home with the best musical medallion? No. That's what I say. Mickey, Eddie, you know I love you, but the Spider Woman's gonna hold on to that award. Capiche? Capiche? I think overall that is a more well-rounded and consistently excellent show. So, yeah, Kiss of the Spider Woman, you keep the award. Let us now, ooh, let us now rank Blood Brothers against all of the other shows we've talked about here on the podcast. Sorry, I was I was getting my bearings here on this end. Okay, so if you want to check out this full ranking of ours, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, access our pinned post. That will take you to our link tree. The link tree will take you to our Excel. No, it's not an Excel spreadsheet. It's a Google spreadsheet. Oh, we're with it. We're modern. We do Google spreadsheets. On the second tab of that spreadsheet, that is where you will find find this ranking. Blood Brothers is going to be number 33 on this list between The Scarlet Pimpernel at 32 and Man of La Mancha at number 34. Ah, good bedfellows. A nice cozy sandwich of musical theater. Ah, that's what I think. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, you know, a great number of celebrities have starred in Blood Brothers over the years, including the one and only Miss Carol King. But I want to focus on Bernie... 
Denise, Linda, and Maureen Nolan, who all played Mrs. Johnston at one time or another. The Nolans would have been known to audiences as members of The Nolans, a girl group that consisted of six sisters. Colleen and Anne were the fifth and sixth members of the group, and they never appeared in Blood Brothers. Sorry, ladies, I don't know what to tell you. The Nolans were popular in England, it's true, but they were supremely popular in Japan, where they were the first European act to win the Tokyo Music Festival with their song, Sexy Music. Let's hear some of that along with a few of their other hits. Let's start with I'm in the Mood for Dancing from 1979, Gotta Pull Myself Together from 1980, and then we will we will finish with Sexy Music from 1981. Let's hear that medley.
I can absolutely see why this group was popular in Japan. Their sound is very city pop, and I am a fan of Japanese city pop. You bet your sweet bippy I am. Your sweet, sweet bippy. Full Moon by Yunko Yagami. Look that up today. I hope I am pronouncing her name correctly. That's J-U-N-K-O, last name Y-A-G-A-M-I. Yunko Yagami. Oh, Full Moon. It's a great album. Look that up today. Bonus fact, in terms of the best-selling girl groups, the Nolans rank number 14 with 30 million albums sold. You made good, Nolan sisters. You made good. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the Random Number Generator. I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Sassy Silly Shipmates. Everyone ready? Then away we go. subject of our main feed coverage is a 1967 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 161 performances. This episode, by the way, is dropping next week. Oh, can you believe it? You're not going to have to wait two weeks. We're going to be back on a weekly schedule until the holidays roll around, and then we'll take another break, but then we'll be back. You know, you know how this works. The name of the show is Walking Happy. You... What? You, that's not your favorite show in the world? That's not a show that people clamor to revive every few years? Oh, we must have Walking Happy back. Who says that? No one. But we will talk about it. We'll see what that show is all about next week. All right? Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. You can donate $1, 3 5 or $10 a month via Patreon if you donate at least $1 a month, you'll get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes, as well as a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 19 bonus episodes, which are, wh wh what are they about? Well, well, they're about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, The Little Mermaid Live. Oh, you get a full review of the film Cats, as well as Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus. Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, the trailer for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, Annie Live, The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration. More $1 a month bonus episodes coming soon. Keep your ears open. You also get season one. That's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a special series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself, and you get all 16 episodes in M3, The Movie Musical Man, a series for which we watch trilogies, trios of movie musicals that are tied by common themes. 
That's all. That, I mean, think about that. You get all of that just with the $1 a month tier. If you donate $3 a month, you get all of that, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing, all 10 episodes in the Wildcats Everywhere series. That is a series dedicated to the high school musical franchise. Thank you very much. As well as a one-off all about Julie and the Phantoms and all 14 episodes of TV VIP, a series dedicated to musical television shows. $5 a month will get you all of that, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. You get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and all 14 episodes in our Broadway in Chicago review series. And, and on top of that, you get volumes one through six of Shout About It. Oh my gosh, what? Yes, yes, we just released volume six of Shout About It. These are collections, compendiums, if you will, of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from all 150, the first 150 episodes of the show. It's true. Finally, $10 a month will get you all of that plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed, 12 episodes that's season one of The Snub Club, a series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were snubbed. They were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and all 12 episodes in the Turn It Off series, which is dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. You might be streaming the show through Spotify, Audible, or Podbean. That's musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Hey, email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny all the way out there in the booth in Chicago. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Ha ha! Ha ha! You know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Venusian, and good night. Okay.